Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. guest today is Mr. Joel Peterson, who's the 12-year chairman of JetBlue Airways, recently retired in May, former chairman of the Hoover Institution, and the founding partner of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake City-based investment management firm with one billion under management. Since 1992, Mr. Peterson has been on the faculty at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, teaching courses in real estate investment, entrepreneurship, and leadership. He's the author of, the, of a recent book entitled Entrepreneurial Leadership. Welcome, Joe. Nice to be with you, Gil. One of the themes of your recent book, as well as previous ones, Joel, is the importance of trust in the organization. Uh, before we get into the enterprise, I want to ask you about the macroeconomy, you know, in the presence of two shocks that we are going through right now. Uh, both uh, appear to affect the psyche of the society. Uh, based on your observations and companies, uh, what can we learn uh, that may be useful for the country in general in the area of trust? Well, I think in general, trust is the operating system of a life well-lived and therefore of uh, items well-managed yeah. uh, because trust is actually developed as people deliver on promises. You know, if you really think about it, you trust people who do what they say they're yeah. going to do. And I think we've had so many shocks and so many disappointments and so many political leaders, frankly, who've not uh, lived up to what they've told us they were going to do or said they believed or whatever, that I think trust levels are kind of at all time yeah. lows. And so I think uh, one of the books that I wrote is called The 10 Laws of Trust which uh, has a hopeful message. And that is that leaders can be intentional about building high trust yeah. cultures. And there are laws that they need to follow. And if they'll follow these laws and these principles and get feedback on trust levels, they can actually over time create higher and higher trust levels. Right. So I think, it's, I think the notion is quite applicable to our personal lives, our family lives, our society in general, our communities, running companies or whatever. It's a really powerful 
way to run things. On the other hand, it's highly yeah. fragile. You, know, you can destroy trust in a minute. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, important one to understand. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, we have a fractured sort of uh, uh, society now. Um, countries don't trust each other, it looks like. And within countries, factions and, and other segmentation schemes uh, don't seem to trust each other. So, you know, it seems to me that to make policy and to implement policy consistently across a country has become more and more difficult, right? I agree, totally. And is trust a, a um, you know, uh, is trust a, a, a attribute that we have to really develop for, for the country to work? Well, I, th I think uh, at some level, yes. And at some level it is uh, capable of being worked yeah. on. But it takes it's kind of starts at yeah. the top. It takes leaders who have high integrity, um, and it really starts with the integrity of the leader. If you don't have that in place, it's hard for the rest of us to follow if we don't believe we have integrity right. at the top. And so I think that's the first thing that you have to establish. But then there's a number of other things, and one of them includes communication. Yeah. We've got to have transparent, frequent communication. It has to relate to bad news as well as good news and report on events before, during, and after. And then you can start to develop trust. You may not like everything you hear, but you begin to trust it. And uh, But I think, I think it's happened not only at the political level, but I look at the media level now. I don't think anybody really trusts media much yep. anymore. Uh, we don't trust Congress. A lot of people don't trust their business leaders. I mean, we've all become so cynical right. that uh, it's... It's going to take some work, and I think that will start with leadership. Yeah, yeah, and I really like this notion of uh, trust being an operating system uh, because it's foundational, right? To 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 actually have a successful organization, whether it's a a commercial organization or a societal one, uh, it's a foundational attribute um, of that of that operating system. What are the other foundational aspects that you would consider, whether it's a company or a country, uh, that are you know almost necessary conditions uh, for that system to succeed? Well, I think you have to be clear around your yeah. values, and values are really just priorities. You know what matters most, and I think if people don't agree on that, then I think it's hard for trust to build. So I have this kind of hierarchy where I look at things and I say, you know, if people, people may disagree on the yeah. tactics to get something done, but if you bump it up to the strategic level, the odds are much higher that they'll agree. And if they don't agree on strategy, you bump it up to objectives. Yeah. And people often really do share common objectives. People want health. They want education for their kids. They want fairness. They want uh, sort of justice. So there, there are things you can say, hey, these are really the important objectives. If you ever get to the point that people can't agree on that and our values are really fundamentally torn, I think you're at the point of kind of a, of a dystopia, yeah. uh, of a place that you just can't live. Right, right. And as you say, clarity uh, and the ability to communicate uh, at that level very clearly uh, to the population 
I, I think it's important. Even if you have all the right attributes, if you're not able to clearly articulate them, you can't really implement anything. Exactly. And there's a real art to getting that right. You know, it has to get, it has to be kind of yeah. simple in the end. There's a, one of my favorite uh, expressions is one by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., uh, the the great jurist who said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, <laughs> but I would give my life for the simplicity the other side of complexity, yeah. which which really means that you have to do the, the complex, thorny, tortuous route to get to something that is simple enough for people then to execute on. And often you find that the really brilliant people are able to take complexity and boil it into some larger truth, some bigger truth that people can get behind. And that needs to happen too. And so getting meaning around that objective really is dependent on describing it in a simple, clear, concise way that people can right, get behind. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Joel. So it's not only in business context, but also in scientific arenas where uh, we seem to be losing the ability to simplify things, right? So, you know, uh, if you think about hard sciences like physics, uh, astrophysics, and, you know, things like that, uh, theories that emerge tend to be so complex and requires, you know, so many assumptions and so many particles and so on. Uh, it's it just, uh, just difficult to internalize at any, at any level. Um, which probably means we haven't really figured out the meta right. truths yet. You know, I mean, if you kind of look at Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared, that is, talk about something <laughs> yeah. that's simple, but talk about groundbreaking and non-intuitive and everything, you know. And, of course, he tried to uh, merge the notion of the very, very small with the very, very right. large to come with a unified notion of physics and never was able to yeah do we it. haven't so gotten my guess there. is yeah. somewhere out right, there right so. yeah i mean e equal to mc squared was the last simple formula <laughs> yep exactly <laughs> so I, I want to touch another another uh, subject you talk about in the book and that is establishing your personal brand and um you know that the brand one of the important thing about the about a brand i guess is consistency right so if, uh, if you don't have a consistent view, consistent set of values, so consistent things that people see from you, then you have essentially brand confusion in the market. Yeah, and, I think there's a couple of things yeah. about that. One, go, go ahead. Oh, go, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that it's hard for people to trust you if they don't know what yeah. your brand is, if they can't predict how you're going to act. And the second thing is it's very hard for people who are working with you to make decisions. You know, it's actually really empowering if you're predictable, if you're consistent, people can jump in and make decisions with great confidence that you'll support them. Whereas people who are mercurial, unpredictable, don't have a clear brand, have a really fuzzy uh, brand, people are scared to make decisions. And therefore there's less power in the organization because it's not distributed effectively. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I remember you saying, um, I don't know if it was in a book or, or somewhere else, that if if senior leaders are making decisions at the 75-25 level, it's a symptom that basically says that there isn't enough trust built up in the organization 
that subordinates, you know, just pushing that all up and make, making the senior leader make basically all decisions. Exactly right. That's, that's that basic principle. And fundamentally, what I always say to people that I coach in leadership positions is you should only be making the 5149 decisions. Yeah. You know, that if you've really got your organization so they can trust you and you're predictable, they can make most of the decisions that come across the transom. And, but you're going to have to, what you will realize is you're going to end up making really tough decisions. Every decision you make is going to be a tough one. That's where it right, should be. Right. And in the midst of all of this, you also talk about uh, protecting your personal life. And uh, I think this has become a, a, a more important thing uh, in the midst of all this uncertainty and volatility and, you know, variety of things people are trying to accomplish, it's a very complex objective function that you're trying to manage. And it's very easy to lose sight of, uh, sight of your, your own life, essentially, right? You know, I find that people who don't have a personal life, who've turned yeah. it over totally to their professional lives, you can't really trust their judgments <laughs> as much. They don't have a balance. There's no counterweight that allow them to see things in kind of an all things considered way. And great decisions basically are the ones that take into account the short term, the long term, second and third order consequences, how it affects other people. And by having a rich personal life um, and, a, and family set of connections, you're more likely to make great all things considered decisions. Right. right. Um, the other component of, um, so, so we, we actually jumped into it, Joel, maybe I, I should step back. So if you think about entrepreneurial leadership, how, how do you define entrepreneurial leadership at the, at the highest level? So I define it as the kind of leadership that uh, allows for building an enduring enterprise. Right. So that's different from entrepreneurship. Right. Entrepreneurs light fires, they innovate. But in many cases, they run into this thing called the founder's yeah. trap, where they just can't grow it beyond that. So the real entrepreneurial leader has a set of skills that are borrowed from other kinds of leaders. So I define this as the being the five-tool leader, borrowing a phrase from baseball that is looking for five-tool players. And uh, the notion is that the entrepreneurial leader really borrows from all of these kinds of leadership and is able, therefore, to build an enduring enterprise. Right. Yeah. And um, so it doesn't matter what, what the size of the firm is or, you know, what industry you are in. Uh, essentially, uh, you have to bring two almost different types of skill set, if I understand this correctly. One is the ability to innovate uh, pure entrepreneurship. And, uh, and the other is leadership, which is, a, you know, sort of a, a, a very complex set of skills that allows you to build and manage a complex organization. And you, so it, it tends to be these skills, skills, as you say, tend to be in different people, typically, right? Yes, uh, although the entrepreneurial leader appreciates that they're all necessary and builds a team. I regard business as a team yeah. sport. Great entrepreneurial leader has a great interest in all of these because they understand that that's the only way to build an enduring enterprise. If I can take yeah. a second, I, I'd like to describe uh, those other elements. 
I think they'll help your listeners yeah. get a sense of that. Would yeah, that be absolutely. Okay? Yeah. So I think one kind of leader is, as we've said, the entrepreneur, the, the innovator, the lighter of fires. But another kind is the manager. And the manager is typically a person who can really take complex things and deliver a product or a yeah. service. So managers are all about complexity. Uh, intra- and uh, it, entrepreneurs are often about simplicity, you know, getting to the core. Um, then you have administrators. Administrators are typically about policy. They understand second and third order consequences. They, uh, they're often people who run agencies, mm-hmm. who know how all the policies fit together. Uh, so that's an element that you need to have. You also need uh, somebody who's a presider. You know, sometimes people will dismiss the idea of having a presider, but these people maintain the status quo. They give um, sort of a sense of security and ongoingness yeah. to an institution or enterprise. They kiss babies, <laughs> they cut yeah. ribbons, they give speeches, etc. And then the final uh, kind is the politician. Yeah. And politicians typically make compromises. They make deals. They understand power. They reward friends and, and punish enemies. <laughs> And uh, they get reelected. So there's a lot of, of uh, politics that has to go on in a firm to sort of get people to compromise positions. So if you think about all five of those, knitting all five of those right. together, you typically have an entrepreneurial leader or leadership team who can create an enduring enterprise. Yeah, yeah. So the challenge there is uh, those five people or skill sets or competencies sound very different. Um, their orientations are going to be quite different. And so in any enterprise, I would imagine they will be specialists uh, like that. Uh, and so the challenge for the entrepreneurial leader is really bring those five competencies together, either in different people or in combinations of people, right, in a team. That's a great comment. And I think the notion that you can knit those together yeah. You know, that's quite a skill. And I think that's really the the major skill that an entrepreneurial leader has. He or she may have a couple of them on their own, and they know enough that they need the others. But the main thing they know how to do is knit them all together, get the best, all things considered, uh, decisions made. Yeah, um, I know that, you know, you've been involved in education for a long time. Um do you do you believe these uh, this skill this particular skill entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial leadership let's say is that a teachable skill can you take um, you know somebody at the at the MBA level and make that person an entrepreneurial leader? You can certainly enhance their idea of what it is and inspire them to perfect themselves in various areas and to fill in where they have gaps. I'm not a believer in this notion of leaders are to the manner yeah. born it, uh, because I think people can learn, people can develop. On the other hand, people have proclivities. Yeah. Uh, and I've recognized in myself certain proclivities that mean that I have to hire in certain of the tools. You know, I have to create a team. And I think the thoughtful entrepreneurial leader uh, understands that, but they they also have this sense that I can get better, I can change, I can develop right, things. Right, right. Yeah. So one characteristic is really flexibility, right? So 
um, you know, one of my books, Joel, uh, now 11 years ago, it's uh, called Flexibility, Flexible Companies for the Uncertain World, uh, where I argue that the, the structure of the company is, is quite critical. So how you set up a company uh, is, is quite important because if it's not flexible enough, uh, you won't be able to predict the future very, very precisely. Uh, what we know is that the future is going to be uncertain. So, so really, you need a very flexible way to, to, to manage through it. And what, what you are showcasing here is it's not only just the, you know, sort of the, the framework and the structure of the company. You have to fill it, fill it in with the right type of uh, skills and people and organizations. Yeah, and I actually think as the leader, you get to set some of the mindsets that people have. And I think the earlier you yeah. do this, and then the more consistent you are with that, the better. So, for example, if you say, here, the best idea wins, not the most pot, most powerful right. person. We're all about the best idea winning. That means that you'll be flexible. You know, you're not going to be locked into an org chart that says, if you're at this level of the org chart, you get to make all the decisions. Yeah. It's going to say, no, the best idea, wherever <laughs> right. it comes from, the org chart. And so there's a lot of things like that that are sort of mindsets that go about preparing you to be flexible, to be yeah. organic, to be dynamic, to, con to, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the 10 laws of trust is that high trust organizations uh, celebrate respectful conflict. Right. They recognize that out of conflict comes great ideas and that it can be fun and interesting. They give feedback. They do all these things that allow you to be flexible going forward. And if you don't set that up and, and then demonstrate that standard yourself in your own behavior, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just like in business context, you know, again, in scientific arenas, this is a problem, too. So there is, you know, what they call the conformance bias and the confirmation bias, right? Uh, yep. And it's it's very easy uh, to get into, uh, get into a level of comfort with the status quo. And if, if the incentives are such that uh, it, it promotes status quo, uh, you will eventually kill off any any um, any conflict in the in the organization, and it's quite possible that an organization without conflict is is probably going to fail. Yeah, I mean, think about the quiet places in our life. A yeah. hospital, hospitals are quiet, peaceful places, and everybody's dying. You know, <laughs> so. Same kind of thing in an organization. You want a little bit of noise. Uh, it just needs to be respectful. So there are ways to manage conflict that are better than other right. ways. Yeah. So another, um, uh, you know, kind of theme that you developed was creating a mission for the organization. So the first first aspect of that is finding meaning. Um, yep. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I always say that a mission statement is not yeah. a mission. Most mission statements are delivered from the corner office. They're wordsmith, they're framed, they're put on the wall, and they create cynicism in the organization. Right. Uh, and the reason they create cynicism is because they're not really lived and they're too generic. If you want to have meaning, you really want the mission statement to be developed by the team by the company. And I think the best way to do that is have people debate yeah. 
uh, and I think debating the five words that are, we talked about brand a minute ago, uh, Gil, and that was, um, you know, what, what are you delivering? What are your promises? What, well, if you think about the five words that you'd like to be known for, that really represents the meaning, your meaning in the right. marketplace. What do you deliver to the marketplace? And frankly, if you get it right, if you get the mission statement that, or the mission really right, you don't have to ever worry about motivating yeah. anyone. They're, they're about that mission. That's what they care about. They come in every day thinking about it. You've worked with scientists and engineers. My father was yeah. a scientist. And you didn't have to tell him what to work. He couldn't stop thinking about the problems he was working on. They were his right. life. And if you can get that in a business where people think this is me, this is the meaning of what we're doing and we all are in it together, then you can, uh, there, there are always conflicts between marketing, engineering, personnel, et cetera, but they all come together. If people say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're achieving, here's my line of sight to this goal, and we resolve our conflicts going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you, if you have that very clear, um, then even hiring becomes easier, right? They will be almost self-selection into the company. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the other component here, you know, you talk about setting mad goals. So, you know, so one of the things that I, I sometimes write about is, uh, you know, there is a tendency to, to, to practice incrementalism. And we see that in almost every domain because it's almost like a risk management process to say if I incrementally improve something, and, you know, I have a backup plan, which is a status quo, and I just try to push uh, very marginally in one direction, the risk I'm taking is very low. The problem with that approach is that the returns are also going to be low, right? So you, you need, you, your goals have to be, uh, cannot be incremental. That's what I am understanding from what you're saying. Yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, they, there's something about a high-level yeah. goal. Uh, describing it in a way that's memorable, that's aligned with your values, but is doable. You know, if the, and those are really kind of the, that's what the acronym stands yeah. for. And if it isn't that, uh, you're going to have a hard time getting people behind mm. it. Uh, whereas if you can describe it in a way that is mad, you get what you measure. I, get, I guess that's the other thing that's been said a, a million times by people is that you get what you yeah. measure. And so you need to be measuring something that yeah. matters. So setting mad goals is really how you achieve mad results and get meaning and hire great people and retain them. And all these things tend to work together, but it's hard work. I don't think people realize how hard it is to define a simple <laughs> goal. You know, I thought, think uh, Bill Gates's thing when he said, you know, we want a computer on every desk running Microsoft right, software. Right. <laughs> it was a brilliant, that was a brilliant yeah. goal. Yeah. And it was inspiring. It was huge. It lasted forever. I mean, so, and that, but most of them that you read from most places are terrible. Right, right. They're generic. They're forgettable. At JetBlue, we said, we want to bring humanity back to air travel. <laughs> and we actually built a culture that was differentiated yeah. uh, by really treating customers differently. We got better crew members. We kept them longer. We just, all kinds of things flowed from that uh, very memorable way of capturing what we were about. Right. Yeah. It's almost like a journey that will, that will never end. 
so to speak, right? Yeah. So, so you know, if a goal is you know sort of tactical um, and in a very short horizon type goal, uh, it doesn't really motivate people. Um, it has to be bigger, but but you say it it also has to have measurable attributes to it. Otherwise, it just becomes, you know, sort of motherhood and apple pie. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's so hard. I mean, you need tactical goals and tactical measures. That's kind of how you measure the weekly, daily, monthly progress, being on time, on budget, delivering something in the market. But if that's all it is, people get lost in the shuffle. You know, they, they, they really lose track of we are becoming great. We want to be the leading producer of X. We want to be known for Y. You know, I mean, some really big thing that encompasses all of these tactical measures that, that we do as a, as a part of just managing a business. Right, right. Yeah, and then the next step there is building alignment. Um, clearly, in any complex organization, you're not going to get consensus um, very quickly. So there is a... Uh, I would imagine a process that you need to go through to make that happen. Yeah. And I, I have this simple thing that I actually learned from Marvin Bauer, who was one of the founders of yeah. McKinsey, where he talked about aligning values with objectives, with strategy, with tactics, with controls. So that from top to bottom, everything supports everything. Else. And if you get that system set up in the right way, companies will almost manage themselves. But it's a lot of work. I, I've actually tried to manage a company myself where there was not alignment. We were paying people to do things we were telling them not to do. <laughs> and it's a really tough yeah, thing yeah. to manage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, to wrap it all up, uh, in that uh, in that theme is crafting a culture, um, which is probably the most difficult part, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, uh, the famous staying by uh, Peter Drucker is culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> right. You know, and that we can we can copy somebody else's strategy, but a culture is laid down a person at a time, a conversation at a time, a promise kept at a time, the way things are handled, crises are handled, decisions are made, and they and it builds up over yeah. time. And this accumulation is really powerful and and hard to destroy and uh, so it's a big advantage but you the more intentional you can be about building yeah. a culture the more likely you are to build a powerful culture i was actually teaching some executives one time and one of the guys said well we don't need no stinking <laughs> culture in our and i said well that's what you exactly what you've got then is a stinking <laughs> culture because you can't stop it you will end up with a culture and you can either be intentional about it or you can let it grow by top. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> but you are going to have a culture. Yeah, I, I'll tell you a quick story, Joel. So uh, did you know uh, Lou Platt at Hewlett Packard? Okay, so, so. This, this was, um, so I was an intern in between my MBA years at the Hewlett Packard Company in Corvallis, Oregon. And just like any other MBA, first year MBA student, I thought I knew everything. Um, and you know, they, they sent me, sent me off from Corvallis to Santa Clara one day and told me that, you know, you just walk around and HP at that time, this is early nineties, 
uh, had a tremendous culture. Uh, they, you know, they used yeah. to call it management by walking around. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was very much, uh, it's an engineering driven culture, but very collaborative uh, culture. So I was in Santa Clara walking around uh, one of the floors there. And in the middle of the floor, uh, there was a cube. There was somebody sitting in there. Uh, you know, he was bald, you know, glasses, and he waved me in. Um, and then I went in, so he asked me, where are you from? You know, I said, I'm from Corvallis, Oregon. Uh, so what do you do there? You know, I do strategy for inkjet printer division of Hewlett Packard Company. And he started asking me a bunch of questions, you know, how should we price it? Um, you know, what should the supply chain be? <laughs> And uh, I had, you know, instant answers to all of them. And, and he was taking notes. Uh, and, <laughs> and I came back to Corvallis. I told, uh, told the guys that I met this person. And they asked me, you know, what, what did he look like? Where was he sitting? And so on. And I realized that that was Lou Platt, who was CEO of Hewlett Packard. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think you find the curiosity of uh, these folks. I'm just reading this book, The Trillion Dollar yeah. Coach. I don't know if you've read it. It's about Bill Campbell, who's a friend of mine and an old football coach. And he would just ask questions about everything. He was interested in everything. He talked to everyone. Everybody was his good friend, his hugging friend. He would stick his nose into anybody's right. office and... Uh, you know, a little bit like Lou, he had questions for every, everybody <laughs> right, and everything. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you will know it. If, if a company has a very distinct culture, you will know it as you walk in because it's consistent. Yeah. Uh, it goes yeah. through, you know, all aspects of the company, right? And, um, you know, it's a very costly thing for, the com for a company to do. I don't know what your experiences have been, Joel. I, it's very easy to lose too. And as you have said before, it starts at the top. So if the company had, you know, maybe just one change or a few changes in its management uh, structure, it could very easily lose a culture that it, you know, it built up over 20, 30 years. Yeah, well, I always say that each new hire, yeah. when you get to a certain point, brings with them baggage from another yeah. culture. And it can either harm or enhance the culture you've already got. So that's almost as important as uh, intelligence, skill set, you know, whatever else. It's sort of what spirit and attitude and way of going about things does a new hire yeah. bring? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can also see this in M&A situations, right? So I have been through a, a couple of them uh, and in a pharmaceutical company, for example, I was at Pfizer in the 90s and uh, Pfizer, as you know, went through multiple acquisitions uh, during that, uh, in a 10 year time frame. And you would think that, you know, any pharmaceutical company should be roughly similar to another large pharmaceutical company, right? Uh, they are clinicians, uh, engineers, you know, um, scientists, they should be roughly the same, but what you quickly find out is that um, you know you take X and Y, uh, they may have the they may have gone to the same school, studied the same thing, but they bring the culture of X and the culture of Y. It's very difficult to put that together. Yep, I agree. So um, 
So the, the third aspect here is, you know, about building that team, right? So, you know, you talk about hiring people and, you know, most companies um, succeed or fail uh, just just on that principle, right? Whether you, you, you hire the right people. I sometimes, you know, in, in some of my writing argued that companies should have hiring processes that are sort of self-selection basis, uh, meaning, you know, when it is really when an employee comes into the company, that employee has to also select the company based on set of characteristics. Right. You can't really go out and hire somebody and say, you know, this is your job. Well, that's such a great point. I mean, I always tell people that uh, I want them to interview me, too. When I'm interviewing somebody, I say, you know, this is a more important decision yeah. for you than it is for me. I want you to do reference checks. I want you to ask me the hardest, thorniest questions, the things that trouble you. I want to have a really authentic, genuine discussion because we're talking about fit. We're talking about a long-term relationship that matters to both of us. And so getting that team right. So in this chapter or these set of chapters yeah. where I talk about the team, I say, you know, it's really important to source. You want diversity. Uh, you don't want to just hire me over and over. So sourcing is important. Interviewing is important. Due diligence is important. Reference checking is important. Onboarding is important. Coaching and giving feedback. Assigning, reassigning, promoting, demoting, giving evaluations, and then ultimately uh, potentially yeah. removing. Some. Those are all elements that you have to think about in order to put, because fundamentally, if you think about what you are about as an entrepreneurial leader, it's to put the best team on the field at all possible times. And that may mean benching some people. It may mean removing some people, but you've got to get that right or it's hard to deliver. Right, right. And the trick is also uh, to be consistent, right? So if you have a lot of volatility in that process of, of hiring and developing um, uh, people, um, it's not going to work, right? So, so it, every hiring manager um, has to have a consistent view as to how that should work, right? Yeah. And uh, and I guess it, it only comes through um, practice and and uh, and doing it over and over. Yeah. Well, that and I actually think that um, if you can get your team so they're all bought yeah. on to the idea. I mean, really, team. What happens with a team is it gives you different optics. You're able to triangulate and you make better decisions. And so I, I like assigning a number of people on the team to do interviews with different subject matter areas, different things to probe, and then they come together. And often if they've made the decision, they welcome the person, they make sure the person is successful and uh, things tend to work well. If they get assigned somebody that they've never met, all of a sudden, in many cases, they'll sabotage it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, yeah, there's a lot here in this book that um, we won't be able to cover uh, in this conversation. But, uh, you know, it's I find it very useful to, to kind of step through the various attributes a leader has to think about. Uh, some of it could be natural for, for, a, for a leader. Uh, but some of it may not be, right? Some of it is not something that you are thinking about constantly. So to have a framework like that, I think is quite useful. 
Um, so in conclusion, Joel, I wondered, you know, um, what do you think, uh, if you were to start over today, start a new company, what would be, if I ask you three things, three most important things that that you, you would you would uh, consider to be you know kind of defining attributes that you need to you need to really focus on so i think at the beginning it's a little bit different from what it is once you've turned profitable and you have something that's ongoing yeah. at the very beginning i think it's really important that your first that number one that you've identified a real market need that people are willing to pay for something that costs you less to produce than it's yeah. worth to them. So I think having a business model, an economic business model that will stand up to scrutiny is really important. Yeah. Secondly, I think you've got uh, your first few hires are yeah. critical. They'll make all the difference. So getting that right. And then I think the third thing is making sure that you capitalize it properly. And I don't just mean that you get enough money. I mean that you get the right money. And uh, I always tell my students that money has faces and it's not Franklin and <laughs> Jefferson and yeah. Jackson. Uh, it's really the people that come with that money. They are your, your parents. They're the people that are really launching this thing and they can either add value or destroy the enterprise. So I think if I got those three right, then I could pick up this book and um, be able to really navigate my way through the next several chapters of yeah, development. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the capital part is quite critical that um, I think, you know, uh, as you say, starting entrepreneurs may not really understand. So you know, when you seek a capital provider, you're also seeking a partner, right? It's not a, it's not a transaction. It's really a partnership. And if you don't get that right, so the, the three you mentioned, Joel, make sure you have a business, really. Uh, you have a product that has a market and you have some kind of differentiation that you can bring to the market that makes it worthwhile. Uh, make sure you have the right people to actually do it and make, make sure you have the right capital and the right capital provider to make it happen, right? Those are the three things. Yep. And I would add to that and the right level. And the right level. Yeah. Some people overcapitalize, some people undercapitalize. I mean, you can you can spend your whole life raising capital, which is not a good thing to do, or you can be way overcapitalized and people then waste a lot of money, everything, which is not a good thing. So I think getting the, the amount right, I would also put in the capital right, column. Right, yeah. Excellent, yeah. This has been great, Joel. Um, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me. And- uh, It was my pleasure, Gil. Fun to talk with so you. Thanks so much. Yeah, stay safe. All right, you Bye. too. Bye now.